You don't. Check for pulse. So hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Digital Doctor podcast. And as usual, I'm joined by Ed Wallet. Hello. Wei on Wong. Hi. And today we have a special guest, Thomas T.P. Chu. Chu. Is that right? No, Thomas Chu we do. Thomas Chu. So Thomas, how did we, uh, we've actually met um, through the show's website, didn't we? Well, we haven't actually yes, met. Yes, but... we did. Because I got this interest in using routinely collected clinical data and what you have been talking about in terms of data capture is extremely interesting. So I've got in touch and see whether we can do something more interesting on it. So Thomas, you want to tell us a little bit about, about yourself and what's your background and what kind of work you're doing? Right. At the moment, I'm a research fellow at the Children's Brain Tumor Research Center at the University of Nottingham. And my job is to look at the effect of a symptom awareness campaign on patient outcomes, such as how long does it take them to get diagnosed, i.e. the diagnostic delay, emergency admissions rate, can we reduce the emergency admission rate in children with brain tumors, survival and disability? That sounds great. And, um, and yeah, what, what, which episode was it that you, that you responded to? Because you left a comment on our website, which we're always very grateful for comments on the website. And uh, Ooh, lucky I, I you actually, your website, yeah. you took your time to looking. write uh, a really long piece, and, uh, and I thought that was I was very grateful for that. And uh, I just felt it, I couldn't write very much back. In is your research an open source? It might have no. been. It might have been. Oh yeah, it was actually. Yeah, it was research yeah, it was. and open source. Are you an open yeah. source user then? Oh yeah, yes. Well, as much as I can actually. My whole PhD is based on well, it's using free software apart from some of the data management bit, which kind of uh, I need to use a security, well, secure computer in my supervisor's office, and he is running on Windows, and I'm not not prepared to change it. <laughs> but it's been running for many years. I mean, his security system. So I kind of, uh, leave that one alone. But otherwise, I use uh, all the open source software for, for my thesis and the research itself. So I think we're going to focus on uh, patient-level data, which is what you wanted to talk about, and I, I think that's a great topic because you know we're all involved, whether whether you like it or not, as a doctor with collecting or generating patient-level data, um, and it's more about your sort of more concerned with how we use it in a, in a meaningful way, um, and I hope that you know as we talk through this kind of topic, we'll touch on some of those things about open source and uh, about some of the the issues that we've previously spoken about in the podcast. Um, so what do you think on this issue, uh, Ed? Because I, I know that you've been thinking about moving into the the secondary care space and 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 dealing with uh, particular problems doctors have. But isn't that going to sort of generate a lot of patient level data? And what are you going to do with it? So my concern mainly with the patient level data is not the collection bit. From my perspective, is not not difficult if I can design it. And that might sound a bit arrogant, but the point is that um, you know if I. I, I pretty much know how to, you know, what data doctors need to do their their job. Um, of course, I'm less concerned about what data the administrators need to prove funding and things like that. Um, so that makes my life a bit easier. But for me, the problem the problem is more about security uh, and confidentiality and making sure the data is secure and stuff like that. So that really has been my kind of biggest issue with. Some of the sort of products that I'm building that I'm trying to get into secondary care has been, you know, actually implementing the security is not too difficult. It's it's persuading people who don't understand what the requirements are that you have fulfilled the requirements, um, which might sound like a bit of a weird sort of uh, sort of upside down thing. But it's very true. I mean, a lot of people have this idea about what data security is and that they need it. But you could give them show them all the proof of data security in the world and they're still chant the mantra of data security even though even though it's done uh, almost as a blocker uh, just as an excuse not to do something uh, so so my biggest challenge from a data point of view is, is probably not so much collection because that's specific to the product and and the, the, the easy bit the problem really is you know persuading people that okay, it's okay to store patient data that's encrypted to the department of health standards in the cloud within Europe, that, that is actually okay. 
um, and uh, is not, you know, going to send people to prison or, or, or get them fired from their jobs. Um, so, I mean, that's really, that, that's my, that's my sort of where I've been involved in sort mm. of collecting and securing, mainly securing data. I think I think that uh, that's actually a fantastic topic that we can concentrate on as you know info gov information governance security for a slightly uh, different episode. I think the thing that I would like to hear from Thomas, especially with regards to his research interests, is about how can we use routinely collected clinical data, so you know data that we collect as part of our jobs day to day as clinicians on the ward that we require to make decisions about patients and then use them in a different way, for example, uh, for research or for planning services or, uh, and, for, or, and for payment, uh, you know. So, I, you know, that's, I think that's what we'll be concentrating on um, uh, today. So, uh, Thomas, I don't know whether you want to tell us a bit more about, you know, perhaps, my research. Yeah, about your research and, and, and what, what is really secondary use of data? What does it actually mean and, and how does, what kind of secondary use uh, data does the NHS now routinely collect or have been collecting for years? Okay, um, let's start back to what I'm doing. I mean, in a nutshell, it's early diagnosis of brain tumors in children. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm doing. And how I would do it is analyzing routinely collected data. So, I mean, it's, it's more like, it's more or less an extension of what, I, what I've done as my PhD in the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine, I mean, last year, just finished last year. I mean, I look at the symptom and sign, pattern of symptom and signs in brain tumors, children, uh, patients. And what I've done is I analyze cancer registry data that's been linked to something called hospital episode statistics and general practice research database. Okay, I'm gonna explain each of those in turn. Mm -hmm. Cancer registry, um, look, if, but basically in this country, if anyone diagnosed with malignancy, adults or children, you know, you have this MDT meeting. Mm. The, the pathologists would chair, well, basically pathologists would chair the MDT meeting and, and the pathologists got all the, all the tumor details. So after the MDT meeting, the, the pathologists, they send all the data to the cancer registry to register the cancer. It's a bit like this notifiable infectious disease in, in old times. Mm -hmm. So if someone has that disease, they're, they're, they're obliged to notify to public health. But cancer registration is not, stat it's not statutory at all. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not legally required, but most people do, do get it registered because it's important for us to know how many cases of cancer do we get in this country each year and what are the reasons for them, for, for, for those cases, as, as kind of a cancer control, public health monitoring of cancer trends. So cancer get registered, along with details such as, such as the patient's demographics, sex, age of diagnosis, et cetera, et cetera, the postcode, which has actually been used to look into childhood leukemia and the proximity to, to high voltage power lines, all so right. that we, that's why we use postcode. We register postcode as well, and we got tumor de details such as where is the tumor, tumor location, the histology, the grade, the stage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We got all the tumor details. So, in a sense, to make the concept easier for our audience, think of it as an electronic histology report of the cancer. And the coverage of cancer registry is close to hundred percent of the population in England. Wow. So, I mean, basically all the cancer cases are registered in this country. We're doing really well. So we, we, have, we have the list of all the cancer patients each year that capture all the cancer patients in this country. So I'm, what I've done is, well, what I've done is I use the linked data. So I go from the cancer registry, find all the, all, all the, all the kids with brain tumors. Then those are linked to something called hospital episode statistics, has mm -hmm. data. Has is a database of um, hospital activities. So when you are being admitted to hospital, admitted, if an operations, basically all clinical activities, apart, um, yeah, most of them, up to the time you get discharged, they all get recorded in HES. And, and this is something that 
every hospital for every episode that a patient goes in have to submit. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, all NHS hospital in England goes to HES. I think the Scotland, they got their own system that kind of parallel to HES, but it's not HES itself. Okay. So all the NHS hospital in England, they, they submit the data to, to well, ultimately to HES. Actually, the, the data submitted is to administer something called payment by results. So it's for billing purpose to count all these admissions and length of stay and what kind of surgery they had. So, but that data after they finish the payment by results, they get transferred to HES for research purpose. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the HES data is also the, the data that is quite integral into all the recent publications that have come out that has pointed out towards kind of increased mortality at weekends um, yeah. and also that goes into generating the standardized hospital mortality ratio, um, things that have, you know, informed government policy and, and made a lot of news. Is that right? Yes, I'm not sure whether the standardized hospital mortality, they, 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 they can come from HES, to be honest. Mm. I, I can see how they would have done it using HES data, but I'm not sure because I, I'm already I'm forgotten about it, whether, whether, whether they actually based on HES. Okay. Who, I think who can, probably, who probably can, they will be. Probably who can get access be. to HES? Ah, good question. Who can get access to HES? You have to apply to this what used to be NHSIC, I think they changed their names or something. I think they're now called NHS HSCIC. HSCIC, yeah, correct. Yep. They have the HES data. And, well, I mean, I, I was working at a place which kind of a close link to the cancer registry. So the cancer registry, they all, they, they all have their cancer records linked to HES because there are a lot of um, interest among the cancer epidemiology community to look into how patients present for their cancer and what happens after they get treated. I mean, mm. for example, I mean, there are lots of interest in early diagnosis and it's been actually been shown that in this country, I mean, a lot of cancer being diagnosed as an emergency and there's a, a national drive to reduce that proportion of cancer being diagnosed as an emergency. Yeah, I, I did a lot of work. My last job in, in medicine, although I wouldn't really call it a job in medicine, was in public health. And, um, well, I suppose that is medicine. Uh, <laughs> oh, it is. And, and I was, <laughs> We've just lost 50% of our listeners. <laughs> oh, come on. You, you have to bear with me, Thomas. I've got a bit of a reputation for putting my foot in my mouth and saying things like that. Um, and I was looking at bowel cancer. Um, yes. And it was during the time when uh, the bowel cancer early diagnosis campaign was just about to hit the media and everyone was very worried about what was going to happen um, when suddenly everybody with any bowel symptoms lasting longer than two weeks turned up at their GP um, and that GPs would end up referring every single one of them for colonoscopy and secondary care would be completely overwhelmed etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. Um, but you're right I mean it's the same it was the same stuff I mean so I was preparing the guidelines for GPs basically about how to figure out who who to refer for colonoscopy, who to do watch for waiting for, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, the, some of the statistics you're required in terms of European averages, we are, you know, I think it's something like 25% of diagnosis in emergency. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty bad. It depends on which cancer. I mean, like brain tumors in children, I was recording, I mean, in, in, in my research, I mean, well, say three years before their tumor diagnosis, the emergency admission proportion, well, the percentage is, is close to 30. So that 30% of patients was going to ANE with yeah. neurological symptoms and they say, oh, nothing wrong, go home. And then th that percentage creeps up until uh, up to about 60%. So but by diagnosis, 60% of patients, actually they get diagnosed as an emergency and wow. they're, they're children with brain tumors how do you do, how do you define uh, an emergency though because i can imagine that there are a lot of tumors that may present initially with with a blood clot a dvt or or a pulmonary embolism and yeah, when that but... happens and there's no obvious cause you know a well-rounded physician or surgeon might start thinking <laughs> does this mean especially in an older patient that that they've developed a cancer somewhere that we need to be looking at so yeah. would that count if in in that context someone has gone looking for a tumor and they found one 
would that count as being diagnosed? No, in an emergency? it's just it's just attending the emergency department. Yeah, just oh, going the, okay. the route comes in through A and E. Actually, yeah. there's an excellent document run done by the Southwest Cancer Registry. I mean, they, they look at the routes to diagnosis for cancer patients. They they actually painstakingly trace all the routes of diagnosis for all the cancer patients mm. using HES data. I mean, did they start off with you know go to outpatient first? Then they get sent home and they come in as inpatient and they're home again and then they eventually come in through A&E or they just come admitted from outpatient clinic to, to the wards. Mm -hmm. So they trace all the routes and they found that as a very high proportion of cancer patients being diagnosed as emergency in this country. And, and you were saying earlier that, uh, I don't know whether you're allowed to speak about your research before you publish it or maybe you have published it already, that there may be some clues that this can actually be stopped if there is a way we can have like live query the data and risk stratify people with certain patterns of health attendances and health behaviors that you might be able to find yeah. these cancers earlier. Is that right? Well, live query may be a bit of a <laughs> exaggeration. I mean, I spent quite a few years, I mean, looking into it. And well, let's, I mean, just say for brain tumors in children, for example, that is, is part I'm most familiar with. I mean, a lot of patients actually, they, 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 they were seeing their GP or going to hospital with very non-specific symptoms like headaches and vomiting, and they're being put down as, well, you got gastroenteritis, or it's kind of a self-limiting infection and get sent home. Mm. And then, I mean, they, 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 they go into A&E or go see a GP more and more frequent and, well, until one day the penny drops and say, well, let's get a brain scan. And there you go, brain tumor. So there, there's scope for, you know, to, to, to draw the guidelines to say, well, I mean, if the patient has been presenting with non-specific neurological symptoms, which is not supported by any other evidence that it could be gastroenteritis or anything like that. I mean, think could it be a brain tumor? Yeah, but isn't but you have only looked at mm -hmm. brain people with brain tumors and going backwards. Do you can you kind of apply modeling kind of pros, kind of prospectively? So people with this, how many people with that same pattern of of health attendances actually turned out to have brain cancer? So that's yeah. a difficult question, actually, because I mean, at the end of the day, the, the, the incidence rate of, of cancer in the community is actually quite low. Mm. So it's something that I will be trying to look into the next three years, to be honest, see whether we can, you know, if someone in the community presenting with certain symptom and sign, can we say, I mean, those are at higher risk, mm. those are at low risk, and those could be uh, reassure and those need a scan so that's one thing I try to look into so I think that would be useful no. because you don't want to go around anyone who's got a bit of a sniffles or a bit of gastroenteritis yeah. go scanning their head because I mean that's mm -hmm. that's not good I mean uh, you don't want to expose young children to excess uh, radiation True. risk um, yeah that wouldn't be great yeah no the, the difficulty is try to you know to, to to separate the two groups who who is high risk and who is low risk yeah. So I guess yeah. this leads us quite nicely into what another thing that we want to talk about today, which is how can we uh, routinely collect high quality data uh, as part of our clinical care, which can then hopefully, which can be in a digital usable format that computers can help us find mm. these patients more appropriately. Perhaps we can talk about how data is being collected at the moment. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's been a while since I, I was working clinically, but I, I actually I do not think that things have changed that much since I left. I mean, for example, HES data. You all remember when you were house officers, were you? I think they're no longer even called house officers anymore. Stephen, have you ever wow. been a house officer? Are you only a foundation? Foundation, no. foundation doctor one. No, I was a foundation year one doctor. What about you, Wei Kyung? Were you, were you a houseman? I was a houseman and a senior houseman. Awesome. Yeah. But yeah. you're so old. I think I was the first year that, that, <laughs> of the foundation years. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, but I was still called a house officer all the time. House plant. <laughs> house oh, <yeah>. plant. <laughs> well, I mean, well, you remember those. I mean, you, you, yep. you more or less kind of, um, you know, you, 
have responsible for all the general note keeping. When, mm -hmm. when the consultant go around the world round, utter something, you write them down, do you? Yep. Yep. And when the patient goes home, you have to write a discharge prescription and a discharge summary, do mm -hmm. you? Mm -hmm. And I think most of us re remember at some point during the, uh, the, the F1 or house officers year, you, 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 you finish the discharge summary, it gets sent to a mysterious place called a hospital coding. Ah, yes. It's always in the basement, somewhere stuffy, next somewhere to medical stuffy. records or something. It, it, was, it, was, it was quite mysterious to me and until I get into research cover, then I, then I fully understand what their roles are. They, they really do play a very important role. So what they do, they, they look through the notes, look at your discharge summary, and they code them into ICD code. Well, I mean, current is ICD-10, International Classification of Disease, so that it can go onto a database. Mm -hmm. because, That's the well, HES I mean, database, is it? That will become the HES database. Okay. So all, all these codes, the procedure, what surgery, when the patient come in, when the patient get discharged, what diagnosis they had, uh, how long they have stay, who was the consultant, all this get coded. So the, the diagnosis symptoms they code it as ICD-10 currently. And so they all go into database and this the surgery codes OP, OPCS4. Mm. So what, what procedure they had become coded. And that database will be used for payment by results. That's how hospital get paid by their primary care trust. Well, they no longer exist now, but they used to be primary care trust, pay the hospital using information in that database. So after the, 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 they pay the bills, all this information get transferred, become HES, and that could be used for research. So that's what I've been using to look into how patients present before they get diagnosed with cancer. So all the data is actually heavily based on what we write in You the... write them on a piece of paper. Oh, well, <laughs> and, not, and well, people read them and code them. Well, just to say one thing, I'm now ST7, and, and up to last week, I was still writing discharge summaries, so it's not too far away. I still remember. I don't have to cast my mind back that long. Um, uh, so, right, okay, so you use, so the, this is what you're calling routinely collected data at the moment. At not the not not the stuff that we write down as the patient actually comes into A and E or anything like that, or even their scan results or and is that right? The, the, the immediate problem you could see is that the coders they they're not themselves clinically qualified, mm. and I have to say many of us oh, I'll be better be careful about this. Many of us haven't good great handwriting either. Well, uh, oh yep. Well, <laughs> and how detailed is it? I mean, if I go and this used to happen to me a lot, um, if I go and try and cannulate a patient fourteen times, um, and is it that detailed? Like no, the no, no, of... th th those don't get recorded. They don't get recorded actually. I mean, oh, if you right. go, I mean, if well, any of your audience are interested in 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 this thing, I mean, it's just a big procedure. Uh, well, I mean, admission date, yes. Discharge date, yes. It's actually a lot of items. I mean, if they go into uh, intensive care, they, they will, I mean, a lot of things get recorded. But otherwise, for a, for a simple admission, I mean, you've got admission date, how they've been admitted, is it by GP, A&E, outpatient, is it day case, and what's the reason for admission? So it's either they, 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 they will code the symptom or signs, or if you've got a definitive diagnosis, they actually code that diagnosis, and they can code up to about 20 fields in the, in the diagnosis field. So they can, you can have 20 symptoms, 20 signs, or up to 20 diagnoses. Well, I mean, most, most they don't use up to, up to 20 anyway. Then you get surgery, will be coded. Then you got admitting specialty, treating specialty. So, I mean, if you um, say being admitted from A&E to say general medicine, so I mean, you got A&E one episode, general medicine one episode, then you get, say, transferred to general surgery, then you get another episode. So each admission, you even have several episodes. 
if you for listeners who are really interested in going through exactly what data that feeds this beast, um, we'll put it on the show notes. But you can get it under um, a link. Data dictionary.nhs.uk. Oh yeah. And if you go under um, commissioning data sets, uh, it's there. Version three, I think, at the moment. yeah, I don't believe my knowledge from working in clinical analytics last year actually is coming to some use now. Um, but um, but yeah, it's all there. It's all defined. Yeah, we'll send the link. I mean, if the, the link I will give you is if you go that, to that link, there's a there's a bunch of PDF on the right hand side of that page, and if you click on those, it will tell you actually what are the data items yeah. and how they you know what what do they actually collect. It's actually very very comprehensive. And that's why it's really, really good in terms of if, research. If, but I guess then come back to data quality and data completeness, mm. isn't it? Because it might be comprehensive, but how accurate yeah. is it? And True. There's, yeah. That's, that's the thing. If you've ever known a patient uh, in a hospital and then you see their discharge summary, perhaps they were transferred mm. to another team and you, and you catch a glimpse of it uh, at a later date and you, you look at it and you think, well, that doesn't really encapsulate the case because typically a, a a very junior doctor so for example yesterday was the day where medical students become doctors on the, the black for wednesday the, for the very first time oh uh, we're not allowed to use that term anymore oh, sorry sorry the no longer black <laughs> wednesday what used to know as black wednesday what was previously referred to as black wednesday it's got a symbol yeah. it's just a symbol now yeah but that day i mean that that guy on his first day or girl who goes in uh they're going to be doing discharge summaries and without knowing the hospital process without knowing all of the things that you've just described and without knowing the teams and to be honest without knowing very much about hospital medicine in general they're going to have to come up with this uh discharge summary that will be used as the base for all of these statistics Mm -hmm. so the statistics that the hospital gets paid on commissioning data and all of the kind of research that spawned off of all all these statistics and um i've actually worked with a few consultants who are very diligent and they review the discharge summaries after the uh after they're completed um and they make a phenomenal amount of changes and i think that's that's an important process to, to take a clinically trained person who understands the system and understands what happened to that patient and how best to get the money and to encapsulate the case in terms of what exactly happened and, and, and the, uh, for research purposes too. So, you, you're absolutely right on that one. I mean, I mean that, that's the reason why I'm interested in doing this podcast because we, we got so much we could do to improve data quality. I mean, the, the problem is, I mean, of all these shortcomings of HES and GPLD is actually the best out there we could use for research. It's really the best. Yeah. Thomas, you mentioned GPRD. It's not something I'm, I heard about it, but I'm not yeah. very familiar with it. GPRD stands for General Practice Research Database, which is the parallel of HES in okay. primary care. Although it has actually recently changed its name to CPLD, it's Clinical Practice Research Data Link. Because they, they they get linked to many other other data set now is basically is is GP practices they you know you know GP is more computerized than hospital, oh, so yeah. you go to see your GP I mean they, they don't they don't really write notes anymore they they enter the data the GP enters data into the system, so actually they in a way it's more reliable because you don't rely on coders. All right. Oh, yeah. For the GPs, of course, they don't, isn't it? Yeah. yeah they, 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 they enter data themselves and the computer kind of translate it into some kind of code. Maybe, for example, they, they may, you know, they enter chest pain, there may be a, a drop down box for GP to select it, which is the best um, definition of chest pain with a code next to it. So when you click on it, maybe the code get entered into the database. So how can so, we bring that kind of, if you like, data quality to hospitals? Well, data quality, I think, I think let's define data. Oh, I don't know if there's any benefits defining data quality for a start. I mean, I, I mean coming from someone who analyzes cancer statistics, cancer registration a lot, I mean, you, you always, when you talk about data quality, there, there are four standards you talk about. Well, firstly, is, well, number one is ascertainment. Do you cover the population you want to cover? I mean, are you covering the whole of UK or you just cover well, Nottingham only, for example? I mean, of course, I mean, if you wanted for research purpose, you want to cover the whole country. The data should cover the whole country. 
Second, the second standard is completeness, the, the percentage of missing data. The third standard is accuracy and validity. Is the person entering data entering what they mean to be entering? Mm. For example, in GPLD, I got someone with a height of 10 meters or something like that. There's wow. an extra zero. <laughs> or for some reason, or twenty, or you know, twenty meters, something like that. I mean, I mean, it's something that I mean, IT could help a lot. I mean, they they could. I mean, someone enters something that is really strange, so for outlying. I mean, there should be some kind of a, a flag saying that. Well, can you double check what you have just entered before it committed into the database? I I actually think that having crazy data like that actually uh, gives me more confidence that that data is actually true because <laughs> humans always make mistakes. I remember during the last hack day we were doing some project with vital signs and observations and there was someone with a respiratory rate of zero. Then I knew that I really had real patient data because only real patient data can give you respiratory rates of zero. Well it's not much fun when you when you when you when you're cleaning when you're cleaning cancer data you you, you got women with prostate cancer. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and there's some really weird codes in those GP databases. I mean, I remember when I was doing GP training, uh, play, trying to find the weirdest stuff. And I think there's like sucked into right turbine engine of aircraft moving, sucked into right turbine engine of aircraft at rest. That's RC, RCV255, I believe. Very good. Really? Very good. Very good. <laughs> Is that the, are you referring to the read codes? I am referring to the Yeah, I'm talking about read code. I mean, well, yeah, the diagnosis of GPLDI in read codes, actually. But there is a bigger problem with that, and that is yeah. the fact. And this is something that drives the partners in these practices crazy when they get the GP registrars and things coming through who, who don't know the rules, is that it, the, the, the data is there's so many codes. Mm. Uh, there's so many ways of coding things. You know, you could code hypertension as hypertension none otherwise specified. You could code it as primary hypertension, secondary hypertension, hyper, primary hypertension treated, secondary hypertension untreated. Isolo I mean, iso isolated systolic uh, hypertension. Yeah, White exactly. Hypertension. There is like, yeah, there's literally about 400 different terms you could, and they all have, they're all important because they all then, you know, for the GPs that they determine how they get paid and things like that. Um, I, so, I, think, I think read codes will get replaced soon. I've heard something with called SNOMAD code. Yes, that's right. Instead. Yeah, oh, and they, they, they change it. It's just a SNOMAD. SNOMAD. It's just as bad. Yeah. Is it? Snowmat All right. I look forward to it when I analyze. <laughs> no, SNOMAD tries to describe absolutely everything under yeah. the sun in code. I think it has now grown to nearly half a million terms, right? Yeah. And you go like, it might as well be free text after a while. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it tries to capture every subtlety of symptoms and diagnosis. It's mm. just, uh, well, I think it, you know. No, the important things about code book is it, it needs to have a, you know, a good hierarchy for you to search rather than, you know, you know it's kind of a, a, a confusing mix of codes that will and make I, it. I, a, and I think this is a good point to discuss the fact that too much data is not a good thing. I mean, yeah. you know, if, if, if the data is, if it's too rich, if it's too much, mm. if it's too complex, then actually you might as well not have it, almost. Well, you, yeah. I think you were saying that too much unstructured data is a bad thing. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, I if, mean it, if, it, if it, I've got a, a clear, well-defined structure, well-designed structure, I mean, that's good for clinical use, then it's not a problem. It's, it's unstructured data, kind of a, mm, and it's, it's kind of a, the accuracy and validity, there's, there's a third standard, kind of a, make it not very useful. But it's not even guess... that you can't analyze that kind of data because you can. It's it's more about no one's going to enter in those really mm. obscure codes because, I mean, there's there's more codes, many, many, many more codes than there are words in the English language. Mm. Yeah. And mm. no mm. one is going to, no one's going to do that. They're probably going to have a select few. As a coder, as a human being trying to do that, there's going to be a select few of codes that will cover a variety of situations. Um, and, and there's no way that people are going to enter that data in. So there's so many that are obsolete. I'd be interested to see in both read codes and SNOMED CT just how many of them do not get used. 
Mm. And and the other thing, of course, is that the codes are always trying to catch up with what we know. You can't code something that you don't know yet, yeah. right? So you're always working behind. So there's something inherently broken about that. So you can only code things that you know about. And I guess for most purposes, like building purposes and for researching common conditions, and the things get aggregated in such large numbers, it doesn't really matter that much. But I suppose if you want to capture subtlety of, you know, many episodes for, for chest pain associated with, you know, gastroenteritis and a bit of, uh, and a bit of uh, visual disturbance. We will never be able to do that just with codes. Yeah, I mean, even if you take something that sounds initially really, really, really simple. So let's look at the incidence of myocardial infarction over the last, last 25 years. Actually, when you start doing that, it's incredibly difficult because the things that we use to define a myocardial infarction 25 years ago are very different to the way mm. we define a myocardial infarction mm. now. So there mm. will be many more people diagnosed with a myocardial infarction on the basis of troponin rise that would not, and, and even highly sensitive troponin rise, that, and that would not have been diagnosed 25 years ago. I mean, the treatment for myocardial infarction in the year that I was born, says so a textbook of medicine I, I've got from my, the year of my birth. Bed rest. And it's bed rest, yeah, it's bed rest <laughs> and pretty much nothing else on a CCU unit, uh, you know, if, if even that concept existed. And uh, there's a specific reference to anticoagulants. So they say that anticoagulants may be useful for preventing deep venous thrombosis, but aren't useful for the disease process itself. And that just shows how far we've come. Mm. Yes. They used to just be wards of people on bed rest with uh, defibrillators. Yeah. And they just wait for them to they just wait for them to go into VF, go over, give them a shock, and hopefully it went well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very true. Agree. Agree entirely. And actually, that brings out another point. I mean, pe people think, I mean, when they hear that the kind of research um, I'm doing or my colleagues are doing as you know, epidemiologist or statistician, I mean, they think that, oh, you just sit there, analyze data. It's what you have just said. I mean, the, the knowledge of how medicine evolved that kind of make that make the analysis make sense. See, the example... Because otherwise... It, if, if, if you do not know, I mean, how the treatment of myocardial infarction changes over the years, I mean, well, you, you are going to get some false results. You miss out a whole big bunch of people. Yeah. The, the example that I always like to, to quote is the Giuseppe Verdi's opera La Traviata. Now, Violetta in La Traviata died of consumption. And right. This was in the, the 80, it was set in the 1850s. And consumption was heterogeneous disease. Uh, and, and, and around the same time, Robert Koch, the microbiologist, discovered uh, the tuberculous bacterium. So there were a bunch of people who presented with similar symptoms. So they presented with weight loss. They presented with a cough. They may have coughed up blood uh, and, and, uh, and had some night sweats, those kind of things. And this change in technology, Robert Koch actually describing the tuberculous bacterium as cause of disease then blew open the classification of consumption so in those that symptom cluster you've got people with cancer with lung cancer presents in a very similar mm -hmm. way you've got people with acute infections lymphoma lymphoma <laughs> yeah so acute infections mm -hmm. they you know they're either going to die within a week or they're going to they're going to get better and go on and live and live a relatively normal life but with tb with no treatment that doesn't happen of course so mm. once you've blown that apart that change in technology has has redefined the classification. You can never ever compare tuberculosis to consumption. The rates just it's it's incomparable because the classification is so different. And mm. technology is always progressing, and medical medical classifications are always changing, even in the face of uh, no no advancement in technology. So people are just making up new words for the same thing for no so, good reason. So perhaps the thing is, should we be coding symptoms instead as well? Because the thing about symptoms, okay, I know symptoms, no, what I mean is symptoms, for example, like weight loss, weight loss is weight loss, it's quite an objective measure, right? Where else, you know, consumption is an interpretation, oh sorry, like, or a diagnosis like myocardial infarction is an interpretation, if you see well, what I mean. Well, read codes let you do that. They'll allow you to enter weight loss NOS. Yeah. And everything, like, it will just allow you to enter chest pain, but what, I, any, any symptom. I think we need to think very carefully about what is the point of these, um, of these codes. Now, my worry is that mo like most things in medicine, things are going to be born out of a, a desire to 
get correct payment and shifting money around which i suppose you can argue when there's limited resources like the nhs that's that's you know you need to take account of those things but that's not necessarily the right way to go about it what is the point of coding something so when someone comes into you with a with a diagnosis why code why try and fit them into groups that well, I mean, it's not just for payment. I mean, well, my view is it will be wrong to code things just for the purpose of administering payments. I mean, there are many, there are many different reasons why those, why those data, well, many different purposes why those data are used. I mean, yeah, absolutely. The, but let, let, I mean, let's the, the, just the, think the, through the, it. So, payment is yeah. one of them. The other reason yes. you might want to code things is for research purposes. It's for monitoring trends. Uh -huh. I mean, if you get a, a explosion of certain diseases, you want to ask why, what is wrong, and is there anything we can do to prevent them? Yeah. So then, on the basis, each one of those. Okay, let's just let's just stick with two for now. So each okay. of the payment, payment and and disease surveillance, disease surveillance. Okay. Each of those has a different emphasis. So if you were yes. to take a bunch of people into a room who are only interested in payment, they would come out with a completely different payment framework. I'm sorry, coding framework to the people who are interested in disease surveillance and monitoring because the purpose of those are different. Now, trying to design a system that that like SNOMED CT or whatever is that is going to serve all of those different things in a, in a meaningful way and still provide uh, a few amount of terms to make sure that you will good accurate data is going to be incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. mm. So and I guess this is Stephen, I thought that's a great, great explanation. But this is the, the dilemma uh, that yeah. people face all the time when they want to decide what data they want to collect. And I guess perhaps it is you need to get all the people who so-called own the data and whose livelihood and practice is affected by the output of the data to come together to a room to agree what data they want to collect for whatever purpose. And that's that's the trick. And it's and but that process of engagement, the so-called clinical engagement, especially when you talk about routine clinical data collection, is absolutely key. And I think it's probably a good time to bring up something that I, I mentioned earlier before the podcast, which is the um, advancing quality uh, kind of pilot that was carried out in the northwest of England, where this is exactly what they did. I think they, they looked at several clinical areas, such as heart attack, heart bypass surgery, heart failure, hip and knee replacement, pneumonia, stroke, dementia. And what they did was they get all the hospitals in the Northwest together and where they agree on certain standards that would be measured. And then all the hospitals will measure these standards together. They will share their results with one another. They will come together to discuss why certain hospitals were done better than each other. But interestingly, they also get a bonus payment based on whether they're able to improve their, their their quality and also the people that perform best gets a little bit more payment. But the it's very, very important on how big that incentive is. That incentive shouldn't be so big that it will start encouraging so-called gaming yeah. of these numbers. Yeah. And yet it has to be enough to be able to engage people in the conversation. Um, so that... Yeah. Sorry, I'm really glad you mentioned that because oh. you can see how it happens, right? Some well-meaning mm. people aim to measure quality and drive up the standard for everyone, mm. but they measure mm. only a tiny proportion of what me what it means to be a success. Mm. And then, uh, but when will people realise that metrics in a comp competitive environment have consequences? And of course, like when there's when there's a motivation, like a financial motivation or perhaps a penalty, then of course people are going to game when it's competitive you know like like you know, anesthetists people are just going to make the numbers look good without really understanding or fix the problem or the typical one that you get in A&E of course that uh, if you look at A&E data if, I, I hope I'm actually right in this I'm quite sure I am is that the amount of people that leave A&E at 3 hours 59 minutes is probably a little <laughs> bit disproportionate to what you would expect on a natural... Do you think medical training makes you cynical? I, I don't, I'm not sure. Oh, well, uh, I'm, very, I'm very cynical. I can put my hand up. <laughs> <laughs> but I like, I like what you just said. I mean, the one sentence you just said when you talk about the, 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 the way they collect, the reason they collect, they, they do it for collaborative purpose. The main thing is they try to learn 
the best yep. practice from each other. Exactly. And, and without without a very huge financial incentive. Yep. And but the problem we have is, I mean, I mean, in 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 the, in the entire countries, data is being used as as a competitive purpose. I mean, it's using being used to beat us basically. Uh, I don't for, think, for some for some political purpose. I don't think that's true all the time. It really depends on. Well, who, I'm who's, very cynical. I, I, I think it really depends on who's driving it. I think if it's yeah. driven together with the clinicians uh, who are there, especially when the clinicians themselves do not have any direct financial benefit, their organizations might on a, mar a small marginal you know percentage, but they themselves don't. And what's quite fascinating is that clinicians are very competitive, and also clinicians like people to follow what they do and they t also tend to like to share their approach. They like to tell people about good things that they have done. So what's very fascinating about the Northwest of England advancing quality is that in addition, they just didn't say, okay, these are the, uh, these are the bonus payments. They built in the sharing, they built in the opportunity for all these hospitals to come together to discuss practice in the program itself and that is what they did very differently to all the pay for per performance or incentive linked performance that experiments that have happened around the world so um, i'll be putting on the show notes the new england uh, journal of medicine article that was published in november of last year which describes this study and this is one of the most kind of unique aspects of it and i think we can we can learn from it there's really mm. really good use of data yeah mm. it's, it's to for learning purpose rather than you know, for some kind of a destructive competition. Oh yeah, like that's yeah. That, that's that's a key thing. I mean, they, data could be collected for many many different reasons. It's how you going to use it that's important. Mm. Yeah. But going true, back true, to I mean, what, what 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 we've said, but you know, what data do you collect? Now, the data you collect depends on your purpose. Mm. Whereas, um, I always feel that. And, and I don't know if this is right or not, but um, I always feel that the driving purpose in people collecting data, uh, especially hospitals and secondary care, uh, uh, is is financial. And research is almost a second consideration. So advancing patient quality in a, mm -hmm. in, a in a way that makes sense is usually not a priority. And um, I think we were talking about the other day, it, it, and I think you, you you said to me, Thomas, that every day there seems to be a new scandal surrounding the NHS or an NHS trust. The last, the last few months, indeed, very true. And let, let, let's, let's, put, let's put half your audience off, and all of them are epidemiology problems. <laughs> <laughs> it is. You think about them. All of them are epidemiology problems, are they? Yeah. Or public health. Yeah, you say that though, and I guess I guess that's right. But then you do hear of, of individual stories of people being mistreated oh, in yeah. a hospital. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Um, just in the same way that if someone has a bad time at a hotel, they'll go on TripAdvisor. There are sites springing up where they can people can um, document their experience in hospital, which I think is maybe a good thing. But it, mm. but those kind of things have consequences, and yeah. they change what clinicians do. So that clinicians' priorities may not be looking after the patient in a very sensible, pragmatic way that, that I still think that Britain has managed to keep hold of, um, even in a society where there's increasing litigation. But mm -hmm. I think I fear that that's going to change because people are, are scared and they're scared of of being bad-mouthed on uh, particular websites. They're scared of uh, doing something that may invite an inspection by yeah. one of the healthcare monitors. Um, they're afraid of getting fined and, and criminal charges put against them for something that they may do. Um, so you're going to find, I think, in the next few years that there are going to be more clinicians that are doing more tests for reasons that aren't really in the patient's best interest. It, it all goes back to, uh, it's the Berwick report yesterday, Don Berwick. Yeah, it came out yesterday yeah. or day before? It was yesterday before, something like that. I mean, the problem is... The, the part of the problem is, I mean, you're a clinician working day to day. I mean, uh, I mean, well, they, well, I mean, well, I've been there once, so they all work diligently day to day. But then, it's this kind of, I think there's a lack of communication or engagement between different groups of people who are using the health service or part of the health service. I mean, you've got a clinician worrying that they will get, you know, 
being beaten by a stick from the politicians or the managers, mm. then you got managers fear that they'll lose their job. I mean, we we are just it's a pity we are not working collaboratively. Yeah, I think I I think that's changing though. I mean, yeah, I think that's that is really changing, uh, and this is where I I think that as clinicians we just need to to going forward from now is that we cannot feel that things are being done to us anymore, and we have to we have to mm -hmm. work together more of the with the managers, yeah, and 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 realize that you know that has to be the way forward. And um, and only then would we solve all these problems. And I think it is changing, mm. and and there are more and more chief executives of hospitals which are medically mm. trained. Uh, clinical mm. leadership is becoming a very big part of of professional uh, development of of doctors in addition to their clinical skills. And you know, I, I think we are going the right direction. It's going to take time. It might take ten yeah. years before we really see mm. an obvious change, but. You know, coming back to data collection as well, mm. is that as clinicians, we need to help also drive the agenda. You know, oh, yeah. and, and 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 I think now with with you know clinicians, hopefully like us, you know, speaking on this podcast, raising these kind of issues and discussing it, mm. we will also have direct influence on these things. Yeah, I mean, because an example that encapsulates this problem I, for me, I think, is the the, the saga of the Liverpool Care Pathway. Mm. So, uh, and and we have no, as doctors, we have had no defence in that. So, what essentially has happened is people have have been scared about the Liverpool Care Pathway when uh, the, the media were reporting on it and politicians were speaking up on it. Um, and I think even Jeremy Hunt uh, started talking about policy, which is a ridiculous notion. The Liverpool Care Pathway is a fantastic invention, and uh, I've seen its introduction, and I've seen the way it's improved um, the, 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 the deaths of those who are dying. And um, it's all been blown out of, of proportion. And some trusts, the, the, the trusts that I work in, have literally withdrew the Liverpool Care Pathway overnight. And, same here, absolutely same here. Yeah, and now and now we're dealing with patients who are expected to die within the next twenty four hours on NG feeding, which is which is which just wrong and it's cruel mm. and it's not the right way to go about things. And as doctors, we've got literally no defence. I think our only defence will come when we have data to show what an improvement it's making or or, or it had made, but it's gone yeah. now. The opportunity is lost. I recorded a podcast for Podmedics with an oncology reg um, two weeks ago on the Liverpool Care Pathway. And I've had about three or four, I would describe them as hate, probably hate mail. Um, wow. You wow. know, how could you, how could you put this? And this, this is from medical students because this is not, actually, no, this isn't actually. This, is, this was published openly, so that's probably why. Um, you know, saying, you know, how could you be condoning or producing stuff on this this hateful and awful thing. I mean, so, you know, even though this is something which we know as, as doctors, you know, it does, you know, I'm not saying it works because that sort of sounds wrong. Um, but you know, it is effective. Uh, no, it does work. And that's, that's yeah. the right, that it's, it's aim was to reduce suffering in the last moments of life. And it does yeah. work. It does achieve that aim. Yeah, yeah. And now we've got no idea how to attend to people and, and it's thrown the whole thing in turmoil and people are dying horrible deaths, people are doing inappropriate things and patients' families are asking for inappropriate uh, stuff going on. I mean, I'm sure it, was, it, it could have been misused in the way that people fear. But that's the same thing. That's same with anything, and that can happen now, probably more often. But people won't really realise it because it's not being recorded in a proper way, which is what the Liverpool Curve Pathway was great at doing. Well, what I what I, I feel, I mean, for all those well, recent news about NHS, is a lot of it is either. I mean, the, the discussion is kind of a surrounding emotional arguments, lack of data, yeah. or if, in the case there's data or statistic, they're being misused. To well to 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 well to put forward a certain viewpoint. Actually, I'm just reading a, a, a article an article in BMJ by a very eminent statistician Derek Spiegelhalter on the use of um, hospital mortality statistics. How it's being misreported. Mm. How did this Liverpool Care Pathway thing start? Can anyone remember? 
it, it came out. It came out. I think. I think it was the Daily Mail or something. Or That's right. That's right. I think about the end of last year. Have any of you actually had? Have you read, had a chance to read that report that was created at Liverpool Care Pathway? It's actually quite well written, and it does say that the principles and values around the Liverpool Care Pathway were absolutely solid and grounded. However, its application in a lot of hospitals actually left a lot to be desired. And if you hear the kind of stories and uh, things that have come from it, for example. You know, it's, it's due to clearly misunderstanding, but it was a real problem. Like patients at the end of life who are thirsty, who are asking for a drink and having the nurses not give them a drink. I mean, it sounds completely crazy. And of course, this is not what the Liverpool care pathway was designed to do. But the lack of education and misunderstanding of a tool, unfortunately, has had effects that led to things like that. And of course... But this happens every all the time. You know, we've got F1s right now looking at ST elevation, not giving patients aspirin. That doesn't mean we remove the ACS protocol. <laughs> hmm. um, no, that's that that's slightly that's slightly different because the you are talking about not doing something, whereas in the Liverpool well, Care Pathway, people were actively withholding things that they shouldn't have been doing. Well, that is not doing what you're said because it specifically and also, says and also and also and also, you know, the Care Pathway did that says that at the end of the day, the comfort of the patient matters. It doesn't specifically say lines like, you may give the patient water if the patient asks for it, even though the, you know, it doesn't well, say like what that. it says. What it says is uh, patients lose their appetite and tend not to want to drink at the end of life. Exactly. But if they ask for it, then you should give it to them. Yeah, that's the part, but it's not might not be in the actual document that is right next yeah. to the patient at that time. And I think one of the things as well, I thought it was ridiculous. Isn't that common sense? Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. but but Stephen, but that's the thing, isn't it? When you start introducing tools so that people feel the need within their misunderstanding, it's like it's like do not resuscitate orders, right? We are all very clear that do not resuscitate orders doesn't mean the patient can't, can't go to HDU. It doesn't mean the patient can't get non-invasive ventilation. It doesn't mean the patient don't get two hourly or four hourly ops or resuscitation with um, not cardiopulmonary resuscitation, but resuscitation with fluids and antibiotics. But if you hear some nurses speak, if you hear some doctors speak, oh, that patient is DNR, we don't have to worry about it. Yeah. How is it happens, right? It does and happen. I've I've heard those it, words. Really before. go against palliative care. Okay, exactly. palliative care, the care of palliative. Exactly, and I've got a very good friend who's a who. It's interesting. I was talking to a palliative care registrar, um, and she said in the last six months, even before the LCP was ruled out, she has not started a single person on the LCP, because if care is done right, you don't need the LCP. You don't. And I think I think it's a good opportunity to now with the phasing out of the LCP to actually think about personalized care. And everyone that is doing it right already is effectively still using the same tools that LCP has put in there. And I think it is being the LCP has been great in giving us all a framework to approach these things. And perhaps it is time to move on from it. But people need I mean people need a framework. I mean otherwise there's a lot of fear. Especially the, towards the, the end of life. Is, I mean, you've got pathways and guidelines. They, 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 I mean, well, maybe people see it differently. I mean, they, they are there. Guidelines as guides. They're not kind of prescriptive that you must do that. I mean, they're, they're there to, they exist to reduce variations in care. They, yeah. They're, they're, it, they're, they're not something reduce... that, that they're kind of, a, you know, a, a restriction guess... that you must practice medicine within that little box. Yeah, so it's more I, general. It's more general thing. I think overarching all of medicine and all of medical practice. This is not specific to one tiny yeah, it, area. It's, not, it's a guideline. It's not a standard, I mean, it's standard a bit like, like, procedure. Like, like what I've done. I mean, I, I'm not saying that. I mean, whenever you see a, a child with headache, send them straight to A and E. That will overwhelm all all the hospitals. You know. I mean, it's saying that. I mean, well, if you if you got a child with that symptom and it's not settling, I mean, we should really consider. Is there something more sinister underlying that explain that symptom? You know, if you do guidelines, I mean, kind of restrictive. Say, if 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 you see X, you do Y, then the, the healthcare system won't function. It won't. 
right? I think we are dangerously going off topic now, but it does yeah, go, no. <laughs> but it does go to show though that the the Liverpool care pathway issue has really hit homes very closely to a lot of us. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, Mets in general is just kind of um. I, I just feel that I mean over the years it gets more and more kind of um towards tick box. Yeah. yeah so um, unfortunately, I one but maybe maybe one way to kind of end this is perhaps to think of so how how would digital doctors increase the data quality that we collect um on our day to day work, which will hopefully you know get bet for we, we, better for better research. We did another podcast, honestly. <laughs> we did, oh, perhaps that'll be part two. Perhaps that will be part two. Is you 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 just raise a very big topic. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'd like to see clinicians taking more control of the data themselves yeah. and yeah. its structure. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, actually taking leadership in defining, you know, specific data structures for recording data for their individual specialties or even their individual departments, wherever they work, and mm -hmm. taking control of that. And, you know, of course, there are benefits to standardization. Everyone loves standardization. We must have a one way of doing things. But ultimately, it's shown if you do try and do that, then you just end up with something which becomes so huge, it becomes unmanageable. Um, or, you, or you end up with the lowest common denominator. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mm. And then you get nothing. Yeah. While actually, you know, having data in a structure that is, is useful and evolving within a particular center for a specific specialty over time at a local level is incredibly useful, if that's well-defined, incredibly useful for managing, you know, progress, for looking at improvement, for doing audit, for having multiple cycles of those audits completed. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, so I, I, on a personal level, I'd like, and my involvement with this is very minimal because I'm no longer a clinician, but I think speaking as someone from the other side, from the IT side, and someone who does write their own data structures mm. all the time mm. for these kinds of things, I'd like to see clinicians actually you know, in leadership positions, leading the development of these data structures. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I would like to see, I mean, this data capture being integrated into the day-to-day -day record keeping. That would be the best thing that could happen. <laughs> Absolutely. So perhaps on that note, we shall end. We should. So Th Thomas, thanks so much uh, for coming on. and uh, Thanks and for Steve inviting me. <laughs> and, and Stephen for encouraging us to have uh, Thomas come on. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. See you soon. Check for pulse.